0: listening to resist and restore a podcast from the circle of hope pastors where we're extending the table of our dialogue i'm johnny i use he him pronouns
1: i'm rachel i use she her pronouns i'm julie she her
2: ben white is what i usually say i know we didn't do last names names, (laughs) uh but i'll add the pronouns he him do i say johnny rashid yeah usually i'm johnny rashid he him (laughs) (laughs) we switched it up with the pronouns and now we don't know how to talk julie Hoke, come on
3: oh we're doing i'm julie Hoke. she her
0: this is great content it's all in it's all in the podcast <laughs> that's how great the show is you guys are great we're just anything we you should have heard the conversation we had before this you know rabbits pigeons all sorts of things that you'll never know because they weren't recorded True. talk to us talk back talk back to us by the way at resist and Restore podcast at uh, CircleOfHope.net if you want to get in on that dialogue. But this show is all about extending the table of our dialogue. We're trying to include you in the family because Circle of Hope is a dialogical bunch. We we our dialogue holds us together. Our face to face relationships and even screen to screen in some ways hold us together. And so that's the that's the spirit of what we're doing. We'll start with literal talk back and Julie will explain that. We get into conversation with Bethany Stewart, one of our uh, one of our Covenant members in Circle of Hope who's who leads our circle mobilizing because Black Lives Matter team. And they did a project with wealth redistribution that we're going to talk about. And then we'll end with spiritual show and tell. So it's going to be a really uh, great show, I think. So, Julie, get us going.
3: Yeah, this first section is talk back. We want to uh, share with you some of what we're hearing from folks who uh, are keeping the dialogue going in different different aspects of our communal life together. The talk back I'm bringing today came from our at-home Sunday meeting. After the beginning of the online portion of our Sunday meeting, we have a live Zoom call so folks can hop on there and meet each other face-to-face. And we were talking about uh, your talk, Johnny. You gave the talk on Sunday and in the afterhang, people were really connecting with the question you addressed was what happens if I don't feel anything when I pray or in worship right And we were talking about how um, easy it can be to like feel bad about yourself and then that feeling bad that shame gets in the way and just clogs us up in, in our relationship with God and so somebody said, it was so good to hear, like, I'm not defective when I have a different response than the people around me, for example. And and we talked about, you know, our desire to feel things in worship and prayer and chasing an emotional experience. So people were really just processing that. And I think it's worth talking about a little bit more because we all can relate in our own ways at different seasons in our lives. What do you think about that, pastors?
2: The story that jumps into my mind is when I uh, came back from Mexico, I had lived uh, a year of pretty intense discipline, lots of opportunity for spiritual development and practice, and I I was a 21-year-old guy that that went back to my evangelical university um, where they had chapel every Wednesday, and I decided kind of just arbitrarily that I would go to chapel. It was not mandatory, but I decided I would go to chapel every Wednesday and not miss it. And uh, even one semester, I, I had class at like four o'clock in the afternoon. It was my first class on on Wednesdays, and chapel was at ten. But I went early so I wouldn't miss chapel. And I went on my bike too. I, I rode. A, it was an eleven mile commute on my bike, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. Because one, because I just decided to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and that was kind of the the kind of guy I came back from Mexico being. I'm gonna make this kind of uh, spiritual decision and and stick with it. But one of the reasons I liked to do it was because it was a big group of people worshiping. And I got a lot of energy out of disobeying the worship leader because he would say, okay, everybody stand up, it's time to sing. We're going to do this rote thing that evangelicals do. One time I even remember he told us to to hold the hand of the person next to us and jump up and down. This is the kind of stupid thing that people get into um, with a lot of evangelical worship things. And I was like, hell no, but in my in my little rebellion, what I really liked to do was to wait for the Holy Spirit to actually do something and wait until I felt moved um, to actually worship and not just do it because I was told or because it's what I was supposed to do. And I was I really got free from that that demand and and, and lacking the demand made it happen almost every time that the Holy Spirit would move and I would be compelled by by God to stand up and worship and adore and actually have this heart-to-heart relationship happen in this imperfect environment. So I, I'm praying for everybody to get out from under the demand and 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 there's so much freedom on the other side of that. Just do what you want and if you could actually get there, something else will happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to try to let God see me where, where I actually am. Cause I, I think that, you know, that desire to like have a, an epic feeling, a good feeling in worship is really normal. And, um, I, and I agree with you all that it, it can be a barrier if we think like that's the measure of our connection with God. So I like to just try to kind of tune into what I am thinking and feeling and let God just, just kind of see me there and usually something happens i something moves in my heart it may it may not be that like that like epic feeling that i'm looking for but that's not required for a connection y'all are reminding me my temple cell um read hebrews 2 last night we were Im- impressed by the jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Uh, so I'm hanging on to that too.
3: Someone in the talk back was thinking about this Thomas Merton quote, which I don't have in front of me, but he talks about how the desire to please God does in fact please God. And mm. so the, the...
0: Hey, Thomas Merton.
3: Yeah, so we were just, we, we were noting that, that, that our desire to connect with God, our desire to have that experience that you're talking about, Rachel, that pleases God. It's not a particularly defined experience that means connection with God or gives God glory. Just our desire alone to know God and to worship, you know, pleases God.
0: The psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I always thought that meant that God would give you desire as opposed to the things you desire. He would supply you with desire. I don't know if the translation works like that or not, but I like the idea. I have to say that I grew up in an Egyptian household in a predominantly white area, and so I'm constantly suffering home imposter syndrome as a person. And the church didn't really help me with that, because I was wondering. I I look at what other people are doing, and I want to be like them. That's how you assimilate in in culture. You're copying what people are doing so that you can fit in. The same thing was happening in the church, too. Oh, they're raising their hands, they're closing their eyes, they're crying for some reason. I wonder if I can't do that, but I don't really feel like it, so then am I just dead, you know? it's really It was really hard for me to let go of those expectations. And, you know, I still hold that. And I have to, like what Ben was saying, do what you want. That's something I had to learn how to do. And I even had to learn what I wanted and how to make it work. And what 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 are the things that excite me, you know, Yeah, and that's, and and for me, feeling God expresses itself in different ways that I didn't grow up with, you know, so, and I, you know, I mean this, this is why this memory is so important to me, when it was so clear that Circle of Hope was opposed to the war in Iraq when I first joined in the early 2000s, that was a moment of feeling God. Oh, God is here, I'm not crazy, there's people like me, I'm connected, I can do something, you know. Now i found people that I can worship with. I mean, that's that's an incredible feeling. That community is so important that I don't have to do it alone, don't have to be by myself, you know. I felt so disconnected that when there was a plural pronoun in the song, like our God is an awesome God, in certain settings, I would just say my God is an awesome God because I didn't feel the hour. I didn't feel connected to the others. So it meant a lot to find a family.
2: I think that that psalm that you mentioned, God will give you the desires mm-hmm. of your heart. I definitely read it that way. Oh, the same that, way. That God gives you the desires, but the key is of your heart. Most of your desires aren't the ones of your heart. Most of the desires you experience, even your desire to worship God, is often clouded in other stuff that isn't from your heart, because your heart is is what I, I consider it as your true self hidden in Christ with God, and there there's a deeper reality in you that you don't even know. And when you worship, not only do you encounter God, you encounter your true self who is in God. Mm.
3: Ben, I love that description or definition that you just gave. When you said that phrase, what popped up in my head is a scripture that was ingrained in me in childhood. The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? And it's just such a different fundamental understanding of ourselves. To grow up believing that you have to distrust yourself all the time. To your heart is your true self hidden in God with Christ. Is that how you said it?
2: Hidden in Christ with in God. In Christ with God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the that Corinthians y'all. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Well, the, it definitely, I'm doing some work on the heart there because I think when I you could also say when I was talking about you know most of your desires are not your heart. You know, the metaphor could be that that is your heart, your, and your heart is all of these flimsy, uh, deceitful desires that run you around all the time. But the the faith that God has planted in you, a seed that is imperishable, and it, that that is your heart. You know, it's just it's just a redefinition of heart. I I admit that there's a, a, a discrepancy in the language there.
1: I, I I'm just thinking of what you said earlier. Julie, about um, desiring to be with God, I think the true heart, the heart of our heart is just that the heart of our heart wants to be with God is made for that connection with God. And I think Mm -hmm. that's down underneath and bigger than, you know, all these other cloudy desires, the deceitful stuff that kind of layers on top.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, if it's my true desire, the heart of my heart, my true identity to want to be with God, and when I don't, Aren't I just being my fake self when I don't feel like that? What do I do when I don't feel God? I'm just like, what I'm, what I'm hearing is that I'm not really myself. That seems pretty
2: painful, right? Yeah, I would say don't give up.
1: That's why I mentioned the shame thing, because I, I like how you brought that in, Johnny, because I think that comes from really not meeting our own expectations. It's not God's expectations of us. We put this pressure on ourselves based on what we think God or other people want or need from us. But th- I'm not sure that's coming from God. And so I have to get out from under that shame of my own expectations or from others to like feel this oneness with God in, in my own heart.
0: Or maybe even just practice delighting yourself in joy, you know, not even with the expectation. Find out the things you like to do. Find out who you are and what it means for you to find joy. Like, like a lot of my friends find joy in... Uh, they do this. They they walk in the Wissahickon Creek. This is part of the Philadelphia region. And they like, they like the feeling when they're out there. I don't, frankly. But I do like being stuck in traffic on the uh, Schuylkill Expressway in the fall and observing the leaves in Fairmount Park as this highway cuts through the park. That's me on the Wissahickon. Now I'm delighting in God. But I had to... Discover that. I don't know anybody who likes to be stuck in traffic, but I found something, <laughs> you know? It was just, I'd go to Palmer Seminary and be stuck in traffic. I had to enjoy something, you know? And that's was, that was what happened. So, my, my thought is, find what's joyful for you. Find what delights you, and maybe you'll find God there. And it doesn't have to be what the, what the church even pressures you to, or, or offers you to connect with God, you know? Because connect- you might teach us something.
2: Well, and I hope that the church, uh, Circle of Hope, is an alternative to that. You have four pastors encouraging you to explore and express the love of God as, as you're able and uh, to slough off the shame that uh, the church is so famous for. And I, I'm I'm welcoming you in, y'all. Come on in. Let, let's worship together online or in person.
3: Yes. And, and the basis of that delight in the Lord that we're, we're working on is God's delight in us. So let me just close us by saying, repeating a line from from Robert on Sunday. Um, He was reflecting that we are a ray of God's own light. And when we can see ourselves in the delight that God takes in us, it makes delighting in the Lord much more expansive. So I hope you find ways to um, explore that wherever you're at in your season of your spiritual journey. Thanks for talking back.
2: Email us at Restore Podcast at circleofhope.net.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for being a part of this little community that we're forming online. And I, I, I hope that you can connect to our greater community. We're trying to, uh, yeah, extend the table, include you in what we're doing. And a couple ways you can do that are by visiting our website, circleofhope.church. There you can find a cell to get connected to. You can join one of our Sunday meetings, um, which have ways to connect you remotely, and we have an at-home Sunday meeting that's that's for that's entirely online for a for a for an online community that we're forming. Those are all options for you to connect if you want to. And if you want more people to hear this show, you can share money with us on the same website. That helps keep this going, but it also helps keep our whole church going. And and, and if you're me, it helps. It helps me keep going because I'm letting go of uh, something that can uh, that can uh, be a shackle on me. So when I'm generous with my money, I'm freeing myself from its potential oppression. And you can also share the show with people that you think would like to listen to it. And while you're doing that, be sure to like and subscribe to the show. And then more people that subscribe, the more people will see us. And if you want, give us a five-star review and tell us what you like about the show. That'll help more people connect with us too. So there's a lot of ways that you can help make this um, show connect with others and then also connect with our community. I hope that you can participate in that. Hey friends, I'm so pumped to have my girl, Bethany Stewart, on resist and restore. She is a key leader in Circle of Hope. She leads our um let, let why don't you introduce yourself since since you since you got a lot to say. What do you think about that, Bethany?
4: Oh, that's always so hard for me, but I'll try and do it and, and do it fairly. So hey, y'all. My name is Bethany and I have been a covenant member of Circle of Hope for six years. Six years, five years. Awesome. I've circle sphere, as I call it, um, for seven years. I've been a part of a cell for seven years. I lead the Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team, which is a team that works to connect our church's theology to the broader Black Lives Matter movement. I was a cell leader, and I'm sure I'm going to be a cell leader again soon. I'm, I'm at uh, the Frankfurt Avenue congregation now under Johnny's leadership. That's right. You're, you're, you're you know are we're going to put, put you to work. work. Yes. I was a cell leader for five years. I'm sure I'll be a cell leader again soon. Um, and what else do I do? And I am one third of the color correction podcast trio with my uh, my brothers Andrew Yang and Chris Eden.
0: We call it our sibling podcast. Yeah, it's cool to do it together. They they rep Circle of Hope on that podcast, and we have one here too. So it's so good to have Bethany here. She's been an inspiration to me and an important person in my life. And her team. Circle Mobilizing goes Black Lives Matter, did something that I that I I was astonished by. You know, they had the audacity to to make it happen mm-hmm. too, you know, mm-hmm. to 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 work through all potential resistance and and make a radical campaign happen. They called it the Jubilee Wealth Redistribution Campaign. And it was about redistributing our wealth to our Black Covenant members. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign and how how did it get conceived? What was it about and how did you birth this campaign?
4: Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story. So I'll start by explaining what the wealth redistribution campaign was. Essentially, we got, I feel like I say essentially wrong. I always say essentially instead of get essentially. that way. It's just English. Uh, There's no rules. It's about being understood, not saying it right. Um, but the Jubilee wealth redistribution was an opportunity for our church to was really an opportunity for our church to act with righteous indignation um, and to right the wrongs of our country. Right. Our country has done really unjust Mm -hmm. things to people of color, particularly Mm -hmm. black people. And I was really inspired by a blog post that our friend Rand, who leads um, Circle Peacemakers, wrote about the church having the opportunity um, to act as like a co-conspirator with God and to evoke justice. So with that, we decided to evoke justice by asking white members of our church to just give to this pot of money to be redistributed to Black Covenant members, and that happened. We were able to raise thirty-two thousand dollars. So, all of the Black Covenant members at Circle of Hope got an extra stimmy this year. We were able to That's give people awesome. twelve hundred dollars, a little over twelve hundred dollars each. So, what was you said? The goal was what was the goal? The goal was twenty thousand dollars. I didn't think we would get over five grand. Wow.
0: So you thought cuz what did you think would happen? You're asking our covenant members to share with this fund and you don't you think we'll get 5,000 we're not going to get 20,000. We got 32,000. What what did what did that speak to you about our church? What what you know because we vote with our dollars, let's be honest. What you, where you know, where your heart where your uh treasure is there your heart will be also. Jesus says this. So what did it tell you about us that we did this?
4: What did it tell you about us that we actually made it happen?
0: Yeah, yeah, that we that yeah, the campaign worked and we raised $12,000 more than you even wanted.
4: Yeah. So it told me that we're a lot further along in our view of our whiteness. And I'm not white. I might sound white, but I'm not. Um, and my name is Bethany. I know that also sounds white, but I'm not.
0: <laughs> Bethany is um, a white name?
4: Bethany is a white lady name. People are shocked and appalled when I show up the job interviews. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's funny. That's funny. So you, sound, so you, Bethany black Stewart we'll be sounds like a there. white name, then you show up and you're black. Yes. And you of course and know how to, you know how to code switch when you pick up the phone. Yes. Cause that's just what that's, I, come yeah, in, I get it. I get it.
4: When I come in for a second interview, people are like looking over my head, like is Bethany here? And I'm like, it is I. <laughs> <It's>
0: <laughs> that's, I <am> terrible. <laughs> that's, that's terrible. <laughs>
4: um, but when I say our whiteness, I'm saying our because our church is predominantly white. And of course, um, white supremacy culture is going to show up. Right. So I did not think that we were in a place to challenge our whiteness in the way we relate to our money and the way we um, view how we have gotten our money. So, America always has this idea that to be a real American, you have to work hard. You have to work for the um, American ideal, make your family um, rich and all this different stuff. Right. People really um, value working hard for their money, which I just think is this capitalist white supremacist idea that you have to prove your worthiness. In the world, and that some people mm-hmm. are worthier than others, right? I think that idea of working hard for your money comes from white supremacy culture. Um, but with that, it is usually really hard for white people to view their money as not their own because they're so committed to this idea that, like, I've gotten 10 degrees and I worked hard. I spent a lot of money uh, to get these degrees and get access to money. I worked hard for this. You did as an individual, but you also benefited from years and years and years of a system that has gone out of its way to oppress Black bodies. So yes, you probably did work hard, but at the same time that you worked hard, you were also benefiting from something that you didn't ask for, um, but you have a lot of access to. Totally. I say all that to say that it's super nuanced, um, and really unrelatable for the average white person. So I expected there to be some white folks that would be into it and we'd get up to $1,000. I never expected $32,000. In fact, when the campaign started, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to take any of the money because of blah, blah, blah. When we got up the $32,000. I said, I want to check too. <laughs> so
0: let me ask you this. At first you said, I don't want to take the money. Why did you say that?
4: I didn't want to take the money one because I didn't think we were going to get enough money. So, so you didn't I want to take from be-
0: the little amount. Sure. And then but,
4: right. I thought it was going to be like three or $400 from each person. I'm good off of 300, three, $400. That's like one consulting session for me. So I was good. Um, I also felt really nervous, and this is something that I I feel nervous even admitting because like Circle of Hope's my church family, right? Um, But I felt really nervous that people would look at me like a welfare queen and think that I started this campaign just so I could get some money. And I was nervous that people would say something like, well, if Bethany needs money, why doesn't she just go to the mutuality fund? So I took myself out of it at the beginning. But I did jump back in it when we got to thirty two. <laughs> when we got to that thirty two, I said, "Oh, I'm back in it."
0: So you got it. I mean, that's that's an interesting process, right? That at first you were hesitant because of the money and also because of a perceived um, self interest,
4: mm-hmm. and then
0: that changed because of the generosity. So if I'm, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right your suspicion that the church would oppose this was lessened because of how they supported it. And and then it no longer became a potential issue for you to also collect the money because the resistance to the idea wasn't as great as you thought, as was evidenced by the $32,000 that you raised.
4: Correct. Correct. So,
0: so the I- mo- the money was good, but also like, it feels good that people are supportive.
4: Yeah. That's encouraging. And it shifted the way I view myself and my um, place in the church because multiple people were saying that I deserved the money, which I thought was very funny because um, it also kind of relates to white supremacy culture. I have done a lot of work for anti racism in this church. Um, mm-hmm. And it seemed like a lot of people, a lot more people um, see me and all the work that I've done than I expected. So I got multiple emails from people that I deserved, and on the on the pot of money, and even one person sent me money. I think it was like twenty five dollars on Venmo, but they were like, "Yeah, I heard you say you're not taking any of the money, so uh, here's twenty five bucks." Like, I think you deserve something. That's awesome. Which I probably Venmo them back.
0: <laughs> no, keep the money. So what I loved about this is, and we're gonna get into some of the some of the issues here, but. You connected this teaching, and and I should say your team did, connected this teaching to a curriculum that we used in our cells. My cell experienced it. Um, For you, can you share an aspect of this very material campaign Mm -hmm. we're talking about, literally giving people money to our spiritual life? How is this connected to our faith in God?
4: Yeah. So the funny thing about the cell resource, that was created by our team member, Wes who is an uh, amazing theologian.
2: He and is, then
4: I was in a kind of weird transition stage. So I missed all of the um, opportunities to experience the cell resource. <laughs> it was like every time we were going, going to do it in my cell and then the new cell. I think I only got it one time in my new cell. Gotcha. I kept missing the cell resource. Um, but I think... West did a really beautiful job. West and Tess did a really beautiful job of connecting it theologically to this idea of Jubilee that not only are debts forgiven, but um wrongs are righted, right? That people are set free, um, that people are given not only set free and liberated, but also given the resources that they need to live in this new and liberated life, right? Um, I thought that was a really, really important examination as we did this wealth redistribution campaign, because I think it helped, I think it helped people reevaluate their money and where their money came from and mm-hmm. the purpose of redistributing it, right? It's not just charity, it's writing an injustice.
0: Totally. You know, and some of the, some of the idea for the biblical um, sort of justification for this comes from, it's called the Jubilee Wealth Redistribution Project because it's based on the year of Jubilee, which every seven years, debts would be repaid Mm -hmm. and how it works. And then every 50th year, the land would return to its original um, owners. And so whatever wealth you amassed in that time, it would get redistributed back so that Um, there wasn't um, intense wealth gathering and a huge wealth inequality. And so that's such a huge difference. And also all the slaves and bonded laborers would be set free too. Mm -hmm. So just a radical way of doing life right in the Levitical law that I think that we participated in the spirit of that. And additionally, we think of the story of Zacchaeus who defrauded his people as a tax collector took more than his fair share and when he enjoys the table with Jesus he gives away all he returns the money he stole and if he defrauded somebody else he gives them you know four times that amount and mm-hmm. so that's another example of reparations for harm done and an ethic of redistribution
4: in general mm-hmm. um i, I, I don't think go ahead i think it's impossible to repent unless you um, participate in some form of re- of reparation of some form of repair right like how can you truly repent and turn away unless you also repair the harm that you've caused because if that harm still exists then you're you're not really turning away from it does that make sense what I'm saying like mm-hmm. I can't see how you can repent and walk away from something that's still in shambles totally. no if you if you wrecked something, and part of the repentant process is some sort of reparation, right? And I think, yeah, I think that's what we were leaning into as a team.
0: I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely right. That reconciliation and repentance needs to have, you need to turn around, you need to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to sometimes say reparation as opposed to reparations, because it, it embodies this idea that along with forgiveness repair comes harm needs yeah. to be undone you know i think that i think that's exactly what the cross of jesus does for us i think mm. it, it it restores us to god and it takes mm-hmm. a literal action it's not just enough to say i forgive you god had to die according to anselm of canterbury so that the rights could be wronged you know that sort of sacrifice uh redistributes you know it's bonhoeffer called it cheap grace otherwise mm. where you have forgiveness without repentance mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So can we connect that to this is a big subject, but I'm only asking it in one question. Slavery ended a long time ago in the United States.
2: Why did do any... it
4: did it
0: to some did people it. they think it wasn't in my generation. it didn't happen I, I didn't own slaves, Bethany, you know that's what they'll say.
4: Mm-hmm. so they
0: imagine it's so you're already challenging the premise of the question I appreciate that. You know, for a lot of people, it feels so far removed from their experience. Why do I need to pay for? Rep- Why do I need to do have reparations uh, for slavery now? Now that we abolish slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation. Why do we need that? What's your What's your take? Now you know where I stand on it, but I, I want you to speak to those skeptics.
4: Yeah, well, it's not that far removed, right? So my great grandmother was the grandchild of a slave, right? So me. A woman that died in the 1980s was related to a slave. And I'm what, just four generations? My great-grandmother, so mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. Okay, I'm five generations. Like, that's not that far. Some people have five generations. Have you seen the TikTok videos where the people come out and it's all of their their mothers or something? Have you ever and seen how that? many
0: How many white people are five generations removed from their Irish heritage and they still say, I'm Irish? Same kind right. of idea, you know?
4: it's not that distance, right? Like we like to fantasticize, is that a word? We like to like have this idea in our head that there was this distant America so long ago where we didn't really like black people. So we kind of made them work in our houses, but then that stopped 200 years ago and everything's been different. Well, like I call BS, since we don't cuss on this podcast, but that's, if you that's
0: listen to color
4: correction, you'll hear it raw.
0: No, someone's already said BS on, on resistant restore the full thing. All
4: right. All right. Um, but I call BS, right? Like, it is not that distant. Slavery ended in 1865, technically. Um, but then there were still a lot of people. They say that there were some people who were enslaved, enslaved, up until the 1950s because there were black folks, black slaves that were in small towns that didn't get any public newspapers. Uh-huh. And people knew these white families that owned these slaves. And I've heard stories of slave, slaves existing until the 1950s because Unless, they were never wild. they were never given the news and never had the opportunity to get to the news that Joe ass was free, right? And you can look that up. I can't say the names of the people, but, but it's known that there were some people who were enslaved in small Southern towns up until the 1950s. Wow. So that's one of it not being that distant, right? I'm celebrating my aunt's. 70th birthday. She was born in 1951, right? So like, not that distant. Um, But then we've also had so many laws um, and regulations in America that have dehumanized and taken citizenship away from Black folks, right? So although we're not working on a plantation, we are still relegated to the subsections of society, right? So we had folks um, that were getting arrested and then being leased, right, which was another form of slavery. Um, We had sharecroppers, which was very much so like slavery. We had the Jim Crow era from after Reconstruction. Reconstruction was the 1880s. So from about 1890 to the 1950s, we lived in the Jim Crow era where Black people were terrorized and afraid of being killed at any moment. And then Black folks said, all right, it's the South. The South is the problem. The South is treating us like a forgotten stepchild. So let's go up to the North, right? Black folks did the uh, great second great migration, went to cities. That's why Philly looks the way it does. That's why New York the way it does that's why dc is as black as it is and then you start seeing mass incarceration in the 1970s so the great migration started in the second great migration started in 1950 they say it ended in about 1970 1971 and that's when you see my mass incarceration spike is in the 1970s when all these black folks came to these cities now blackness is being criminalized and you get incarcerated. And guess what happens when you're incarcerated? What they happens? force you to work for slave wages. Mm. So I mean, if you say that if you say that slavery ended a long time ago and, and we're so far removed from it, you're choosing to be foolish.
0: Yeah, you're choosing that ignorance.
4: Yeah. Because this this,
0: this was so recent mm-hmm. and so harmful that the reper- that the repercussions of it continue to echo now. Totally.
4: And it's still shaping our day-to-day lives. You know what I mean? Like I'm always very cautious in interactions with the police. Again, luckily, like luckily hmm, that's so loaded, but I can code switch very well. Sure. Sure. And And that's just, that's a survival technique. And I depend on my code switching. Like my life really does depend on it, honestly, in police interactions. So yes, slavery has ended. That form of slavery has ended, right? The actual chattel, ch- chattel, chattel. I hate when I have to say words I've only read out loud. Chattel, chattel. Okay, but yeah, that form of chattel slavery has ended, but the subjugation of black bodies has never ceased to exist. It just takes on new forms.
0: Yeah, and the not, and and I hesitate to say novelty, but racialized chattel slavery was one of the most devastating things that ever happened in the world in world history. It's you insane. Know? And of course those repercussions are going to affect now and it's in our constitution. It's, it's connected to so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of the day, we're talking about when we specifically talk about money, we're talking about earning potential, you Mm -hmm. know, does your, and and, and then there's other things like redlining, systemic exclusion, you know, all, all ways that oppress black people that ultimately depress their earning potential. And Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make that wrong. Right. And the wrong is so, I think one of the issues is the wrong is so astronomical. Mm -hmm. People get discouraged because we don't think we can fix it. So why bother at all? Let me ask you this, $32,000, great thing for our church to raise, obviously a drop in the bucket when it comes to reparations. Mm -hmm. What is the value then of doing something that's almost symbolic here? What does that mean for us? Why is that good for us?
4: I think it's good for us because it can act as a catalyst. Like when we, when we like blew past $20,000, I said, wait a minute, like our church can really do something here. <laughs> like we have a lot of people that want to be anti-racist and are even willing to give up their money in the year of our Lord, 2021, where money like makes everything happen. People are willing to just give their money up because they want to write an injustice. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a really big deal. That is a catalyst Mm -hmm. for change. So for me, especially being such like a hopeful person, yeah, it's kind of symbolic. It was only $1,200 each person, but I feel like it is such a a major step. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like we got to the second floor of really working to be that new kingdom that God is calling us to be.
0: Yeah, totally. I think it, it, it exercises our muscle. You know, Mm -hmm. we we and and if we keep doing and we're probably doing this annually. So let's you're gonna keep you're creating a tradition, a a posture, and I think that's important for people who are generally trying to be anti-racist too. The idea that walking toward a path, having a posture towards being more anti-racist, doesn't mean you have to have it all perfect on day one. Mm -hmm. But we're moving together. It's a journey. It's a process. You know, will Mm -hmm. we ever right all the wrongs for slavery? Maybe not fully. But why would that ever stop us from doing what we can right now to lessen the harm. You know, if if you need to be perfectionistic about it, and that's part of white supremacy culture that you have to be perfect to even try, um, Mm -hmm. that really does dampen our efforts.
4: Totally hinders people. I mean, I, I think for white folks, you should think about the efforts that you try and consult and pay a black person to give you some insight. But yeah, someone like me, I don't know. I'm gonna do what I do. Appreciate that. Um <laughs> you know me, Johnny. I'm gonna do what I do. That's right. I think I'll that's deal, good. I'll deal with the consequences later.
0: <laughs> so let me this is another question. It relates to me. I'm I'm Egyptian, I'm an Arab American brown guy. Um, this is again a big question, but how should it, how should immigrants and non-Black people of color participate in this? Because we were trying to get white people to share in common. What do you say if a brown person's like, how how should I participate? What do you think about Uh,
4: that? I'm still wrestling with that because we actually had somebody who immigrated from Africa um, contribute to it. And when I talked to her about it, she was like, well, my people are from this country in Africa, and I moved to America when I was whatever age. So, like, my history is different from a Black American's history. And that was something I hadn't considered, right? I had not thought that deeply about it. So, I think my response to that is it's a personal choice. If you have the extra money to give to writing this injustice of Black Americans, of black siblings, then I think that makes sense. But I also think it would be just like it was important to me, not for white people, just to give the money and to walk away, because that's a kind of cheap cop out. But I really wanted white people to dig deeply and think about their money and think about where their money comes from. I would encourage, yeah, first generation immigrants to do the same and to really examine possibly the anti-blackness that's connected to their money that they're sharing.
0: Totally, you know, I think that as an immigrant, I can join the effort in participating in paying for reparations because here's here's the fact: even though my parents didn't own slaves, they lived in Egypt and they immigrated here in the 1980s. You know, they they settled first of all. They settled on colonial land, and so Mm -hmm. we haven't even talked about reparations for native people and what we've done to them. But Uh, but they're also they're also benefiting from unpaid labor Mm -hmm. that that you know unpaid slave labor that's 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 part of what made this economy function and so if you're benefiting from that it doesn't and and that's this thing if you're benefiting from slave labor then you're then you need to participate in reparations it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if your ancestors didn't own slaves because a lot of white people's ancestors you know moved here in the in the in the uh, late 19th century 20th century where they didn't have slaves you know but you benefit from this systemic oppression of these people for generations. And so mm-hmm. what does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. How, does that, mm-hmm. how does that work? And I think that seeing it as a collective responsibility,
2: mm-hmm. as
0: opposed to a personal responsibility, is helpful. So this isn't about, mm-hmm. even though we're all complicit in racism personally, in some ways, mm-hmm. this isn't just about personal complicity, but about societal complicity. And I think if we see racism in general as a force that's bigger than we are, Mm -hmm. then we can be convicted by God to fight against it, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and to give life and to give liberation.
4: Yeah, that weird individualism thing that Americans like so much is so harmful. I can't really think of any benefit to individualism, to be honest, but maybe that's because I I just really dislike it. But thinking of everything on this individual level that you're only responsible for yourself and the things that you do will kill a society. We have to look at things on a societal... I think that's what's happening to America right now. We've been in this, stuck in this individual, you know, make your money, blah, 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 things since the 80s. And now nobody cares about each other. And it's hard to maintain, it's impossible to maintain a society where everybody's just looking out for self. It Mm -hmm. just can't can't happen. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So absolutely, we have to look at racism as a communal injustice that we have to communally respond to. We can't respond to it on an individual level. It's gonna get us, it's not gonna get us anywhere. Being nice to me giving me money i'm gonna take it to sephora but that's not really doing anything right you have to think about you have to do this work in community with other people who are wrestling with their internalized white supremacy and their racism and we have to i think as a church now catalyze and con- encourage other philadelphians to think like we're thinking about our money that would be beautiful and to think like we're thinking about racial justice.
0: I mean, that would be great, right? I mean, uh, this, that that really excites me. What you just said because what if our church, because of this work, became a force for reparations and anti-racism in Philadelphia? What it's if, happening. You know, what if one circle of hope shows up somewhere? There's power. There's influence. Oh, these people are serious. They get things done. Maybe you want to listen to them, or they can add to our cause. You know, I love that idea. That it's happening. Um,
4: I can tell you what's happening. One of my friends who practices witchcraft was telling another one of our sororers about our church and telling them if they come to Philly, they should go to my church and she'll connect them to me. Like it, it is happen- happening. We're catalyzing people who are who don't even believe in Jesus. They're out here doing their other thing, right? Like it, we do catalyze people. What we what we're doing as a church really does matter and changes lives.
0: If it would be really incredible if I mean this is a pipe dream, but if what you know if Christianity became truly the abolition and a a religion known for abolition and known for liberation instead of oppression, you know, which it's you know it's as we look at the history of slavery, you you see how the Bible was weaponized to keep people enslaved. this is my 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 but but when when slaves got the bible when the enslaved I should say got the bible they realized oh no we're supposed to be liberated mm-hmm. you know 15 mm-hmm. chapters into exodus and there's a liberation story oh mm-hmm. he's freeing slaves that's what mm-hmm. god's doing and mm-hmm. so the gospel given to oppressed people they see a god of the oppressed aligning with the oppressed and i think that's beautiful that and i think that's authentic you mm-hmm. know black christianity is, is such a testament to the power of the gospel because mm-hmm. you have to overcome a lot of white supremacy that it's drenched in today to hold on to your faith through it. And that, that 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 should be an inspiration for all of us.
4: I think your context should influence or inevitably influences your understanding of the gospel. There is an amazing woman and theologian and minister and faith leader in Philly Naomi Lephart, I'm forgetting her second last name, but Naomi Lephart, where um, I took this class, The End of White Christian America, last year, that was led by her or taught by her. And she asked the question, she was talking about Jesus and she was saying how Jesus lived in this Roman Empire occupied time. And she's asked the question that perhaps even Mary had to teach Jesus about how to interact with Roman soldiers, like our parents, Black Mm. parents, teach their children how to interact with the police. And I felt that thing in my body. I'm not the most charismatic Christian, but every once in a while, I feel God move in my body. And I felt that shoot through my body. And I was like, "Whoa, Jesus is mine. Like, Jesus is me. Jesus belongs to me. And that really last year shifted the way I look at my faith. The way I look at the church and the way I relate to Jesus, he's mine. And my experience matters. So the way I interpret this gospel in my experience in this black, dark body with my long braids living in North Philadelphia, if I interpret the Bible to be working towards liberation in this way, and I double check that with my community and move forward, I feel super confident in that. That's i think that's the way being the church is supposed to be
0: yeah i i think claiming jesus and holding on to jesus as ours is really important i'm i'm'm yeah. I'm, i i feel a a spirit of even competition about that where like i'm not gonna let you colonize this territory with your white mm-hmm. supremacy this mm-hmm. is this is this is our this is ours mm-hmm. you know um and we're into the freedom and liberation and redemption jesus is our redeemer this is the mm-hmm. work that we're doing and so mm-hmm. i think that it it you know, Christianity, we, we need to say, we need to keep, for, for my part, we need to keep saying that because the voices that contradict it are so loud. I mean, there is so much white Christian reaction to the idea of reparations. It's even a term that elicits a strong counterreaction. I'm astonished mm-hmm. that in the wrong company you say that term and all of a sudden it's at the end of the conversation, you know, because people are so hostile to the idea
4: Um Even older black folks. My mom was horrified when I told her my white friends gave me money. What'd
0: she say? Can you tell me about that? (laughs)
4: She she felt like I was taking advantage of my white friends. She definitely felt like I was taking advantage of my white friends. So to give some background, a couple of years ago, maybe in 2018. (laughs) She actually said that to you? (laughs) She didn't use that language, but I know my mom. Okay. Um, So I posted this article that said something to the effect of Venmo, your Black friend, $50 for Juneteenth. And a bunch of my white friends really did. That's kind of where we got the idea of making this a bigger campaign. That's how I realized people were into that. But my mom was horrified. She was like, you know, your your friends really trust you. (laughs) Like, she really felt like I did my white friends dirty. Not so much now, though. Now that I've explained why reparations is important. And when I said to her, like, Mom, I'm 14. I'm in the 14 percent of black millennials that own their own home. Only 14 percent of black millennials own their own home. Wow. I was like, I was the first of my black friends. I was the first to buy a crib like all my white friends, you know. They all had houses. Somebody passed. Somebody was able to give them money. Somebody passed a house down. All of them had homes. But with my black friends, I was the first to like, I was, I bought a house before some of my cousins who are older than me. Like, no, like we are really economically disenfranchised as black people. So every time a white person Venmo's me, I'm taking it.
0: Take the money. I mean, I think that's
4: it belongs to us.
0: I love how you just put it because- you said, like, I, I own a home, only 14% of black millennials do. Someone listening to this say, then why does she need money? She owns a home. I don't own a home. But you're saying, oh, but look at the facts. Here's how we're disenfranchised. Here's how we're oppressed. I'm not an exception to it. And 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 I think this is important because if you make if you make a lot of money as a black person, it's not like you make tons of money either, Bethany. I won't disclose your income, but you ain't no. rich. Um, no. But if, but if you are wealthy or you do have means, some people might think they don't need this money because they're not as poor as white people I know. The truth is that most people in poverty in the United States are white. That's because mm-hmm. most people in the United States are white. That's, are how, white. That, 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 that's yeah. how that works. But that doesn't mean that your skin color and your experience didn't oppress you. You know, right. like right. That's it wasn't you had to work harder for the money and fight other forces to do it. Because who knows what your earning potential would be. If, you're, mm-hmm. if you own a home and you're 14% of millennials, Black millennials only do, if you didn't have these things in your way, then where would you have been? you know yeah. um,
4: If my dad hadn't been raised by a single mom in North Philly and had to scuffle and try, as my grandmother would say, to go to college, and he, my dad was the only one who finished my mom. They met my mom and dad met in college. My mom had to drop out. Right. So how much earning potential would I have grown up with if my mom was able to finish school? My dad was able to finish, but he still, you know, when when you're the first successful black person in your family, you have to take care of the family. Right. So even though my dad had like a good job he was still, and my other uncles and aunts ended up having good jobs too, but they still had to contribute and support each other. Community. Totally. I didn't buy my house on my own. My mom gave me some money and she didn't have that money either. She borrowed it from her retirement account. If I was white, my parents would have had money for me. Totally. <laughs> like I, I, mean, I don't know where white people get money from. I think they have like, have you ever noticed even poor white people go on vacation?
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
4: like, where do y'all get this money from? Like that wouldn't have been my story. Right. So even though I have access to things, I have to work really, really hard and get support from my community to make it happen in a way that white folks don't often.
0: You know, I think white people, white parents do give their kids a lot of money. Um, and they had, they don't have to go into debt to do it. They don't have to reach into their savings to do it. There's a lot of money there. Um, but I think what's, what's, because I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, if I told my parents I need money, if they didn't have any, they'd still figure out a way to help me. That's part of the culture. That's part of the family. And it sounds like you come from a similar experience. But isn't yeah, that if my
4: big, mom it, hadn't had it, my cousin, that's an attorney, would have given it to me.
0: But isn't, isn't that a beautiful thing about being family, that we take care of each other,
4: mm-hmm. you know?
0: And my prayer for white folks and for people in the United States is to realize – Oh, the black people you oppressed, the black people who you make money off of or have made money off of the stolen labor, the slave labor, are your family too. And if Mm -hmm. we're going to be a community and we're going to be a body, then we need to take care of each other. Like that's that should be our instinct. It's not every person for themselves, not in this world. You know, we're holding each other together and we're sharing in common. So to me, reparations is about family love. It's about making sure everybody at the table is provided for that. Mm -hmm. No one takes more than what they need and that we make up for lost for lost nutrition, so to speak, lost capacity, lost, Mm -hmm. uh, lost wealth. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, if somebody's go ahead.
4: White people get robbed of thinking of the world that way, because in order to be white and to benefit from whiteness, you have to relinquish aspects of your culture and humanity and that communal aspect. That's why we made the, we had that one episode on color correction, white people's cousins or did Jesus have cousins? Um, because I made the joke. Oh, yeah, that I
0: love
4: that. The, the joke that white people don't have cousins. Of course, white people have cousins, but the way whiteness relates to family members and community really keeps you from being able to grow that deep bond and depend on each other in a way that immigrant immigrant communities do it so well um but like black folks like the way we are used to depending on each other and supporting each other it seems like it's really foreign to white folks so of course reparations would be weird
0: yeah, I you know, Julius was on last week, my friend Julius Rivera, you can listen to that show if you haven't, and he talked about the sense of community that growing up in an, in an impoverished neighborhood did. We took mm-hmm. care of each other. We provided for one another because we knew we couldn't do it alone, and so it's interesting how material need connects us to one another um, mm-hmm. in a way that complete financial independence doesn't, you know? Mm-hmm he talked about his neighborhood changing when the well-off people moved here and they could they take don't care know of themselves. How to
3: relate.
0: Yeah. They don't, Cause they don't need to relate. They got it all taken care of. You know, mm-hmm. you don't knock on your neighbor's door for a cup of sugar or an egg because you got it already, you mm-hmm.
4: know, individualism.
0: So that's, yeah. And that's great to me. Reparations changing the spirit of individualism is good for the United States, but also good for our church too.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you this before we go. Last question. Tell us where we can find you on social media, Twitter, Instagram, if that's what you do. Tell us more about your podcast and other ways that we can connect with you. What are some ways we can do that?
4: Yeah, you can connect with me a few ways. You can follow me on Instagram at Bethany Stewart, PHL. You can also subscribe and like the podcast Color Correction, where we talk about how we're following Jesus and working to be more anti-racist and working against white supremacy in America. And we just have really quirky conversations about. It's how such we're a good podcast.
0: That. Chris, Chris, Andrew, and Bethany do a great job.
4: Yeah, Chris is white. I'm black, and Andrew's Asian. So we just have a multitude of perspectives on our experience in America. So plus, plus you wanna... yours
0: truly, who is a frequent guest.
4: Yes, Johnny <laughs> is one of our go-to uh, guest stars. So if you want to connect with me, please connect in one of those ways.
0: Thanks so much, Bethany. Don't look Bethany. To
4: me up on Facebook because I'm not going to add you on Facebook. Okay, don't but add you her on
0: Facebook, okay?
4: can
0: add, add me her, uh, on Instagram. There you go. Well, so good to have you. You're awesome. This was such a great conversation. Thanks again. Thanks, Johnny. Bye.
2: All right, let's end the show with spiritual show and tell. We like to share what's been nurturing our souls. Uh pastors are good at receiving from God in all different kinds of ways. And uh, you're ready to share something with us, right? All right, who wants to go first? So, Matthew Thiessen,
0: he's a New Testament scholar, and he wrote a book called Jesus and the Forces of Death. That's a cool title. And it's actually on, on the way to my house, and I'll read it. And I'm trying to get Matt on the show, so maybe that'll happen in a few months. But this book... I listened to a podcast where he was talking about the book. Listening to the author's podcast is a good way to hear the basis of a book, and I'll link that in our show notes. He is talking about the Jewish Jesus and how he related to the culture of his time. And he really taught me something profound, that Jesus was, in fact, interested in ritual purity, the Jewish purity laws, and what he was criticizing the Pharisees for was their hypocrisy. So he didn't like that they wanted to look clean but not be clean, right? And their and their outcomes weren't clean either. And so Jesus was engaged in this conflict and in this argument with some of the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. But what encouraged my soul was he described the things that make us impure as related to death. And Jesus in achieving um cleanliness in the Jew- in the Jewish law was resisting death. And Something changed in how he did it rather than fleeing death. When Jesus shows up to places, death flees him. So Jesus was making things pure by defeating death, even in his presence. And so he put death, the forces of death on guard because the son of man had arrived. And that felt empowering to me. That, and the power of Jesus means that death will flee from us and death isn't our, uh, enemy death fears us because we have the one who conquered it on our side that sort of uh, encouragement keeps me going as a christian that definitely nourishes my soul and it also for me is an affirmation of oh listening to two guys nerd out about jesus on a podcast can actually nourish me and and strengthen me in ways that were surprising and so even opening myself up to that um, and getting that experience was helpful for me and it also coincided with some of the research that I'm uh, that I'm currently doing for a chapter of uh, the book that I'm writing, Jesus Takes a Side, comes out next uh, spring, and I'll let you know when you can pre-order that. But it was just an affirming time of like, oh, I'm doing work on Pharisees and Sadducees and Jesus in this book, listening to this podcast, oh, there's a connection here. You know, there must be a God somewhere. These things all connected to me.
1: My soul has been nourished recently by the community, by more people asking for help and leaning on each other in, you know, everyday kind of ways. I Like maybe the pandemic is helping us to know our need and ask for help, um, even though it, it continues to rage on. I'm wondering if this is one good thing that we're learning in the midst of all the difficulty, um, because I'm seeing people reach out to each other, ask for help, and and kind of lean on each other more. I think maybe we reached a tipping point in the isolation, and we're doing that more. Um, But this morning I got a call um, from a dear friend saying, can you go give my kid a hug? We're out of town, and he really needs a hug. And, um, of course, I was happy to do that, and... um, just inspired, I think, by that vulnerability, that we really are we really are in this together, even though we're like distant from each other in various ways, across the country, across the world. Um, there are ways that we can ask each other for help, and I think that's Jesus.:
2: I just finished "H Is for Hawk" by Helen McDonald. It's a novel. It was like a New York Times bestseller. My wife gave it to me for my birthday a couple of years ago, and I was on vacation. I finally decided to read it. She bought it for me because it was about hawks, and I like hawks. And it just turned out to be such a lovely book. Um, the author, it's its a its a memoir. A certain moment in her life when she was training a hawk, a goss hawk. She's for English. They have goshawks hawks over there. I guess we have them in the United States, but I've never seen one. And her father dies. And it's the, the story of her grief, um, and this training of a hawk, this very difficult thing to do, as a, as a means of her dealing with it. And then also, it's paralleled with T.H. White, who is a, an author, you're, you know him as the author of Sword in the Stone, and which the Disney movie was based on, and also The Once and Future King, which is uh, the better novel of the two books about Arthur. There might be another one, actually, after that. And his his he wrote a book about training a hawk, it's it's this kind of parallel companion piece with T. H. White, and now I feel like I have to be like obsessed with T. H. White, like I have to go back and read all his stuff, because now I know so much more about him from this book, and he's such an interesting person and such a pained uh, life he lived, but then you know wrung some beauty out of it as well. Uh, so interesting. I want to read you a quote. Just uh, uh, the, some of what I liked best was just the, the the quality of the writing. I posted this on my Facebook wall. Remember when we used to say we had a Facebook wall? Um, So here's a quote. People do not live very long or look very hard. We are very bad at scale. Things that live in the soil are too small to care about. Climate change too large to imagine. We are bad at time, too. We cannot remember what lived here before we did. We cannot love what is not. Nor can we imagine what will be different when we are dead. We live out our three score and ten and tie our knots and lines only to ourselves. We take solace in pictures, and we wipe the hills of history. Haunting prophecy there.
3: Well, I got to go on retreat the other week with some pastors from across the U.S. Uh, World Vision hosted a retreat in Utah, and I was invited to participate, and it was So good for my soul on so many levels. But um, I think what I will share here has to do with a thin place, I guess, as the Celts describe it, like a place where we experience God, going back to the talk back we started with. There were speakers and there was lots of content. They developed it in three movements of lament, comfort, and then recommissioning. And the speakers were great, and the worship was powerful, and I appreciated all of that. But I also really just longed to do something in my body, to get out. We were in the mountains of Utah, um, so it was absolutely gorgeous. And I went out for hikes every day, um, but I really wanted to hike to the top of the mountain. And one of the other pastors said, Oh, I, I did it. I found this great trail. I'll take you. So... We went hiking and it was, it was a hard enough challenge that I wanted to give up plenty of times actually. (laughs) But then you reach a point where, where you're so far, um, that it's actually. Easier to keep going than to turn around and go back down. And I don't know, there's a lot I could say about that experience, but it was a place where God met me in the vulnerability of doing something that was kind of beyond my capacity. God met me there. And in the beauty around me, it, it wasn't hard to miss. So I really appreciate having the space to go on retreat and to be outside because that does nourish my soul and to, to meet God in the hard places
2: well thank you pastors for sharing your spiritual show and tell you are nurtured people and thank God because you do so much nurture in our church and, and even in out beyond the, the edges of our church and in the world and hopefully this podcast is a part of that blessings to you friend who's listening we love you